Hello, welcome to the long COVID hour. Uh, thanks for coming back. We um, skipped last week because I wasn't feeling well. I was in a pen crash that was bad enough that I didn't feel like I could bring the energy I wanted to bring for this. So uh, let's try this take two. Um, before we jump in, and hopefully more people will join as we get going, um, but before we jump in, I'll, I'll read the rules like usual, and um, this week we're going to mostly talk about Crip Camp, but then we'll also leave some time to talk about the hearing on Thursday that I know is top of mind for all of us. Um, okay, so with that said... Uh, the rules, as always, are no misinformation, no hate, no attacks on patients, allies, or participants, no minimizing COVID or long COVID, and a three-minute max uninterrupted speaking time. Cool. Um, hey, Ezra, can I bring you on to start off the conversation about Crip Camp with me? Um, just request to join whenever you're ready. I know sometimes you're able and sometimes you're not. And uh, if anybody else wants to um, join and, and talk about uh, the movie, join at any time. Okay, cool. Uh, so I will give a little bit of an overview about the film for anyone who um, wasn't able to watch it. So hopefully you'll still be able to participate in the conversation. So Crip Camp uh, came out right before the pandemic started uh, in, in 2020, and it's about a camp in New York called Camp Jened that was a camp for people with disabilities. It was founded, actually, by my girlfriend, Emily, who some of you have uh, seen on the Long COVID Hour. It wasn't founded by her, by her uh, grandparents. And um, in, they, they founded it in the 50s, and then in the 60s and 70s, it became uh, this camp where uh, that seeded some of the disability rights movement and activism that led to uh, Section 504 and eventually the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the, the movie takes place in two parts. The first half is um, at the camp where all of this started and they have uh, archival footage taken in the 60s and 70s. Um, and then the second half of the film then moves to Berkeley in California where there was a major... Um, uh, action taken at the, what became, it, it was called, I think, HEW or something at the time, but what would become Health and Human Services. Uh, so they were um, trying to advocate with activism for uh, enforcing disability rights uh, and like civil rights for people with disabilities. Uh, I'm sure we'll go into more detail as we talk about it. Uh, so let me uh, welcome Ezra. Hi. Are you there, Ezra? 
I uh, I brought Ezra on first because I I know he uh, he watched it and he joined the uh, Long COVID Hour Film Club, which was like our the little Discord I set up. And if anybody else is interested in that, uh, send me a DM and I'll I'll send you a link to the Discord. Hey Ezra, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, yeah, it was just a microphone thing. Um, cool movie. Really glad I watched it. Um, so much to think about. I mean, there's like so many different directions. I feel like we could go in on this one. Um, I do have some discussion questions ready, but uh, why don't we start with just like what, what were your initial thoughts? And, and yeah. let me, you know, repeat that uh, if anybody else wants to uh, come on as a speaker, join at any time. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I think a few things I thought about it. Um, well, one is I live in the Bay Area. Um, and so it was really interesting to see the scenes in Berkeley and stuff. Like, there's a moment where folks go into a coffee shop. I'm like, yep, I know where that is. It's just, it made me feel very, like, um, connected to that community. I, I was aware through some other things I've read about and, and listened to that Berkeley was a place where a lot of this movement happened, but I didn't know all the details. And that was really just awesome for me to know that that's like in my backyard. In fact, there were even people that I saw on the screen who are people I recognized from seeing around on the street. So like, I was like, oh, this is a, it was definitely like a, a small world kind of feeling. Um, but that's more personal. I think, um, to me, the the movie, the film's called Crip Camp. It's not called Disability Rights Movement in the United States. And I think that was a very um, calculated, I don't mean that in a negative or judgmental way, but I think that was a very deliberate choice by the filmmakers. I think they're putting forward a thesis that um, folks being in, being in an environment where they feel really safe, they feel really seen, they feel really supported, triggered in them the drive to become advocates and activists and push, to, push for change. Because it was a lot of struggle and very, very difficult, but they knew it was possible because they saw that there could be a better world for them, that there, there could be an environment where they felt like they could navigate and they felt respected and they felt fully actualized as human beings. I think that idea is really powerful to me. That was like the thesis of the film. And I think that, you know, I think that's just something for us all to think about as humans. Um, you know, I think that a lot of us, I'll just speak for myself only, but you know, I was not super deep into the ideas of disability justice before I got sick and I feel a lot of shame around that, but um, I do think it's, you know, a great opportunity to learn more from folks that have been fighting these fights for a long time. And I think that that came out really clearly in, um, in this film as well. And, and the way that um, the leaders were able to build allyships with unions and with other, other social movements, I think was really powerful too. So I, I just liked kind of the way that the film showed the nascent social movement and how it, how it grew over time. I think it was just really, really interesting. So I think that's my initial sort of reflection. Yeah, I, I think um, that having that camp, well, the, the, I'll read like a quote from the movie. Um, someone said, 
at camp, everyone had something going on with their body. It just wasn't a big deal. And having that be normalized and not treated as like something stigmatized or something to be like you had to be excluded from the community because of it or just look down on or have it commented on in like what might seem like a neutral way, but to the person who's having something going on might be uncomfortable. I think that was radicalizing for them and they realized that the world could be different than it was. And just because uh, things were a certain way um, didn't mean they had to be that way. Like, just because they were a certain way back home, they realized at camp that they didn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I think that was like the seed that, that started it all. And, and the movie, you know, like the, the kinds of disability activism that they were doing, I think is very different from what we're doing now. I think they were fighting for like the right to be treated as equals in a society that didn't view them as equals. So it was a lot more similar to other civil rights movements, um, like the feminist movement and the, you know, the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that, you know, they, they wanted to be accepted by society. I, I don't think that's necessarily what we're fighting for anymore. I think we're fighting for something different, but, um, but that idea that like, there's nothing really worth stigmatizing about us or us because of our conditions can maybe still be radicalizing today. Yeah. I mean, I think it is different. Um, but I think, you know, the idea of, fighting for acceptance and fighting for knowledge. And I think like, you know, hearing, hearing folks talk about like the challenges that they faced um, being in a wheelchair before society had more accessible buildings and transportation. I think those are, you know, there's a, there's like a similarity there to you know, aspects of like having an energy limiting illness that in the way that like most people, like the, the idea that it's impossible to go to a doctor's appointment is a reality that a lot of people with long COVID and other similar conditions have to face, but like is an idea that most people would never even think of. And so in that sense, I think the awareness piece is, is something that's really important. This isn't exactly what you were saying, but I think the awareness piece is really important because I think that there's a whole group of people that are really struggling to live and be accepted by society. Um, and most of the world is just like completely unaware of it. Yeah. Yeah, they are unaware of it. And then and it was a, they talk about in the movie how at the time they were fighting institutionalization where people, even even small children with disabilities, would be taken away from their communities, taken away from their families, and put into these remote government-run buildings that were, you know, aside that there were a whole slew of other issues, like they were poorly staffed and the people were there were basically left to rot. But also they were just taken out of view. Like that was clearly the purpose, was just to make them invisible so that other people didn't have to look at them and feel uncomfortable. And um, 
I think I think we are up against something similar mm-hmm. where like we don't participate fully in our communities in a really visible way because we're stuck at home. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so I think uh, I think that's an issue. One thing that um, I was like wrestling with early on in the movie, and I still don't know how I feel about this, is um, Judy Human, who had been disabled by polio. Um, when she was talking about her experiences as a kid with polio before going to camp where she was uncomfortable, one of the things she talked about was, um, how another kid like looked at her and said like, oh, you're sick. And she took that as like an insult or something or, or thought it was stigmatizing in some way. And, uh, I don't know. I didn't know how to react to that. Cause here, here she is another post virus disabled person who doesn't view herself as sick though. And like thinks the, the word sick is in some way stigmatizing, but like I'm, I'm post virus. I I'm disabled and I am sick, I think. So I, I don't know if that language meant something different to them. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to project um, too much here because I don't know the details. But I think, I think it's just that there's different kind of illnesses. There's different kind of disabilities, and for her, the sense I got is she was primarily limited in her, in her mobility, and perhaps she thought that being labeled as sick was somehow saying that she didn't have you know autonomy or didn't have the ability to contribute or didn't have the power that that she truly did have you know maybe something like that whereas i think in the case of like an energy limiting disability it may not be visible you know in the same way um but it may i mean i think I think one of the questions is that I like, I would ask you, Daniel, is like, do you feel sick right now? I would answer yes to that question. And she might say, no, I, I didn't feel that way. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of context. I don't struggle to identify with being sick. In fact, I am very open about my identify, like how I identify as a person who is, who is ill, but I think it's, um, you know, it's just different context. And I think, you know, understanding that even people within our community may have differences here, I think is a, is a good thing for us to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I think there may also be a component of what we've talked about before, where, like, the healthy disabled feel differently than the unhealthy disabled. So, so even if she had been disabled by an illness, if she didn't feel sick anymore and wasn't, more importantly, wasn't seeking any sort of medical intervention, she just wanted to have the world be accessible to her. I think, um, I think there's like a tendency, uh, like for people who aren't disabled to view disability as something that just needs to be dealt with by doctors and doesn't need to, the world doesn't need to change, like medical, the doctors, the medical system just needs to fix the person who's disabled. And I think she was trying to make a point that like nothing was wrong with her. Something was wrong with the world around her that she couldn't be a part of it. 
And I think that's that part is still mm-hmm. true for us to some extent. Like we we still want to be a part of the world and have the world um, adjust to us, not just force us to adjust to it. Totally. But um, at the same time, we also want medical intervention if there's something that can be done to relieve our suffering. So uh, I think things get complicated for us. And I think that that it's, it's less complicated sometimes for people with a disability where they're not looking for any sort of medical help. Anyway, we can move on from that. It was just something that that struck me because it, it really felt like, like you said, we're, I'm probably projecting things onto it that she didn't mean, but um, it still like hit me because it, it's not something that I would have said. Um, okay, so let, let, let me move on. So uh, um, I'm just looking at my notes here. Okay, yeah, back home, this is a quote from the movie. Back home, there was a hierarchy of disability. The polios were on top because they looked more normal, and the CPs were at the bottom. CP stands for cerebral palsy. But at Gen Ed, we were just kids. Um, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, there's probably still a hierarchy of disability today, right? We don't all live at Camp Gen Ed or any other sort of post- social hierarchy utopia. Um, there probably is a, dis- a hierarchy. We are somewhere in it. And I, I'm i curious, like, both where you think we are in it and how you think um, that hierarchy and our place in it affects, like, our approach to ad- advocacy or how we're received by others. And also, there's, like, these weird dynamics we've run into with other parts of the disability community. And I wonder how, like, that power hierarchy, social hierarchy, plays into that. That's such a, do you know what I'm talking about? It's I a do. little conceptual. I think it's a bit of a spicy question, though. And I think it's one that I, I personally struggle to have a real answer or response to. Because I don't, I don't really know. Um I definitely, I think where I feel there's a hierarchy, I think I could, I think I would like, like maybe mostly say that it's tricky for me and how I relate to people who, you know, haven't had COVID or have had COVID and, you know, quote unquote, fully recovered from it. Um, I definitely feel like there are weird social challenges that sometimes I experience interacting with those groups of people. And I think, even within the world of long COVID. I mean, there's folks who are really, really severe and there's folks who, you know, barely have any symptoms at all, but but do have them. And I think that that can create just such different experiences for how we navigate the world. Um, but in terms of like how people treat me, I'm not sure I've been sick long enough to really have a great handle on it. And I think it's something that is pretty dynamic. Um, so I, I wish I had something smart to say, but I think it's really tricky. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to think that we're maybe like relatively high on a hierarchy because one, we haven't been sick since cho- since childhood. So like we formed these identities as people, you know, well, I, 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 you know, I, I don't want to paint too broad of a brush here. A lot of people with long COVID did get sick as children, but like you and me at least, uh, and like the, the way long COVID looks to the outside world 
um, I think, is like people who got sick as adults largely. And so we like form this identity before getting sick that we can kind of take with us and um, doesn't have to be um, shaped exclusively by our illness. Um, and I, and I think that's where you get the, like the kinds of news stories that are like, Daniel was a half marathon runner until COVID hit him. And now look at him. He's so pathetic. Uh, you know, that's like, that's how like every news story about long COVID starts. So I think that only works because of like that, that situation that we're coming from. And then on the other hand, we're like, we sound kind of normal. Like we can get on a phone call like this. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't see me lying down prone while talking, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know anything was wrong with me. Yeah. I think that's interesting. And I, I do, I think that there's a, um, you know, especially compared to other infection associated chronic conditions, I think many of us with long COVID, though certainly not all, um, know when we got sick and we have a strong suspicion or, or, or even confirmation about what got us sick. I mean, this is even something that's different between first waivers and folks that got sick closer to like when we did, Daniel, um, of like the, the benefit of like the privilege of having a positive test is actually pretty significant. Um, a lot of folks with long COVID just don't have that. Um, and that plays out in all sorts of ways in terms of medical care access and access to research studies and so on and so forth. But no, I think you're right. Like I, I, I think I share that experience with you where, you know, I can talk about the before and the now and I have, you know, a large group of friends and my family knew me before, before these things. And so doesn't see this as like the number one defining characteristic of me. Um, and that puts me in a different place than I think a lot of folks who maybe have had to deal with things their whole lives. So yeah, I think that is different, but um, I think it's, yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think that's all I have to say about that. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, uh, Julie, who's here but isn't able to talk, uh, sent me a message that I thought was insightful. So let me let me share that with all of you. So she said, um, "COVID being politicized uh, is a hit, and we have to overcome bad ME research." So, so both of those are like things that maybe put us lower on a disability hierarchy. Um, but she said a lot of people get points for being healthy and hardworking previously because we live in an ableist society that values those things. And then uh, she thinks, I think all of that plays into the narrative that we get better with time and exercise will cure us. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. I, I was thinking the same thing, Julie, that like, and and I, th I think about this all the time with my girlfriend, because uh, she has EDS, which is like genetic. So um, isn't expected to, like, she's not expected to fully recover at any point. And I've got long COVID and I'm like more disabled, but I kind of have this hope that that could change at any time because once you're abled, you could be abled again, that kind of thing. Um, it started, maybe it could end. So, yeah, I think, I think that does hurt us. Um, Cause it's like, why, why fund a, why fund research into a 
treatment or a cure for something that just resolves on its own. Yeah. And I think that's also where the name long COVID hurts us that it's like long, not permanent. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Julie. I think okay. we should also be, um, there's one thing I want to say about the idea of talking about things in terms of a hierarchy. I think we need to be really careful about it because there's, you know, we think about things like intersectionality. There's for each of us, I'm like, I'm very aware that like the two speakers here right now are like two white guys. Um, and like, there's lots of areas where even within the social dynamics of our society, there's all sorts of ways that like you and I in particular might have advantages that others don't have. Um, and conversely, there's areas where others have advantages or disadvantages that we don't have. And so I just think like, you know, what's, what's the point of talking about it in that sense? I think that what's important is that we use, we all use the power that we do have to lift each other up. Like that's what it is. And we all have some power and autonomy and we all have some struggles in areas where we don't. And, you know, I think it's important for us to be mindful of those things and, um, you know, be aware, but then don't, um, don't take it for granted and um, don't reenact or um, reinforce um, hierarchies that maybe are unfair and not helping and, um, not allowing us to bridge gaps that exist. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And and I hope it was clear that the only reason I was bringing up the hierarchy at all is because I don't like it. And uh, yeah, I think yeah, the totally, only way totally, to totally. Fight against a hierarchy is to identify it mm -hmm. and understand what it like, how how it's self reinforcing. And yeah. Um, oh, my mom wants to speak. Let's see. Hello, you're connected. Yes, hi. This is actually Daniel's mother calling in. Hi, Daniel. Hi, everybody. Um, Hello. Thank you for the privilege of uh, joining. And I just wanted to weigh in on the conversation um, because I think the what you kind of have going for you in terms of attention um, is like what you were saying before, Daniel, about, you know, I used to be able to do all these things and look what happened to me. And everybody can identify with that. Everybody who's gotten COVID or may get COVID realizes I could get long COVID. So um, there's that kind of attention and interest because it's not just the people who do have it, but the potential that anyone could um, be in the situation which isn't true with um, many other uh, diseases. Uh, on the flip side, it is so new and so invisible that it isn't getting the attention it deserves for the number of people who are affected. So it's, you know, a little, little bit on both sides um, in the situation. So anyway, thanks for letting me weigh in. Yeah, thanks. Did you watch the movie? Yeah, I saw the movie. Okay. okay. Did, did, did you want to share any thoughts you had about it? Yeah, I thought it was a great movie. And it just shows how something relatively small, like maybe this call every week, can change the world, right? People coming together and having ideas and sharing energy and attention could have um, just such an outsized impact on society and how 
things work. So yeah, I thought it was going to be a movie about a camp, but it was so much bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, it starts as a movie as a camp, and then you like you're blindsided by how big mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, um, good. I'm glad you watched it, and I'm glad you enjoy it. I and I I kind of led with a couple of uh, more negative questions, but yeah, the the movie itself is like really inspiring and positive and hopeful and uh yeah so i'm I'm glad you had that takeaway yeah definitely um okay well hey speaking of parents um i have this quote from the film uh my parents are great but sometimes i hate them there are things i want to do that they won't let me do they say no you can't do that you're handicapped they always remind me that I'm in a chair. So this was, um, this is one of the uh, campers with cerebral palsy talking. And uh, um, I, th- I think what they're getting at here is that like with people who are sick and disabled, there's an impulse to protect them and protect them from like a world that isn't safe for them because it's not accessible and because it's not constructed for them. Um, but then that just is like sort of self reinforcing where they're just even more removed from a world that, uh, they already can't access. And I, I was curious to hear if anybody thought that that, um, applied to us now with long COVID. I realize we're not kids, most of us, um, and the world is more accessible now. And and we are kept home or limited more by like our energy than by, um, you know, anyone else keeping us from doing something. But I, I still want us to like think about, is there, are there things that we don't get to do that we could have the opportunity to do if things were different, if we were allowed to do them. And I'm not sure what the answer is for my, my own self, but um, I just wanted to put the question out there. I think for me, the biggest thing, this is this doesn't really have to do with being disabled or having long COVID. This is just more of a structural cultural thing is I would like to yeah. be able to be a better advocate and participant in my medical care. Um, it still feels like a pretty adversarial relationship between me and my doctors and researchers. And I think that like movement toward patient involvement in research, but like what I really want to do is like bring the papers I want to bring into my doctor's office and like look at them together and discuss it. And then not, not everybody wants that, but like, that's the kind of thing that I would like to have. But I feel that like, as soon as you start doing that, you get labeled as like a, um, like non-compliant or uncooperative patient. I think that's, there's no reason for that to be the case. Like there's no reason for the fact that like, just just because I've done research doesn't mean I'm going to be a bad patient. It just means I'm actually interested. And I think that's a cultural shift I'd like to see happen. Um, I also think that like, I don't know, just um, there are things that we could do in the world to make it easier for people with, energy limiting disabilities, you know, getting around, um, dealing with basic, you know, 
activities of daily living and hygiene and health in all sorts of ways. And I think if um, my friends understood more deeply the ways they could help me and make my life a lot easier, um, right now I have to put a lot of my energy towards not doing things and taking care of myself um, instead of, or, or like explaining to other people that stuff. And if other people understood those things, it'd be a lot um, easier. So it's not quite the same thing, but that's sort of how I how I think about it. Yeah, I, I like your point about the doctors. I hadn't made that connection, but I think it's analogous. And there, there's been this like movement in medicine away from shoot, I can't remember the name. But basically, there there was this old idea in medicine that like doctors knew everything and patients knew nothing, to the point where doctors were empowered to make decisions for their patients without even getting consent first. Because it was like at the time it was thought I'm, I'm thinking like until the 1970s, 1980s here, it, it was thought back then that um, that there was no point in getting consent because the patients didn't know anything anyway. Like medicine was so scientific and so uh, arcane almost that like unless you'd been through medical school, you really had nothing to contribute to the conversation about your care. Uh, and then that changed. And now it, doctors are taught that they need to get consent for care and they need to um, give their patients some information before getting consent so that they can get informed consent. Um, and so that was like a further change. And then now there's there's still debates in medicine about whether uh, like how much information is required for informed consent and how much information doctors should give patients. Like, should they take them through a full course of microbiology? Probably not. So it's like, there, at some point, like there's this power asymmetry and the doctors are going to be making some decisions about how much information to share and how to frame things in a way to like guide patients toward a certain decision. Um, yeah, I think I think that's still something we wrestle with. And then obviously you experience it every time you go to the doctor with long COVID because there. What, what's so interesting about that is there's a the power asymmetry is still there. They still have the prescription pad and get to make all the decisions and decide what information to share and, and what not to share. But they actually may have less information than the patient if they're not up to date on the latest science and the patient is. And I think that's where it becomes like almost farcical for us to show up at the doctors and be like told that we can't have access to treatments that we know more about than they do. Um, I don't know. Now I'm just rambling, but it was a good thought. Definitely analogous to, uh, you know, like p parents thinking they know what's best for their kids, but then um, making decisions for the kids that they wouldn't make for themselves. Yeah. Um, and in general, I do feel like, you know, I think we've talked about this before that like getting sick and disabled just removes so much power and agency from you. And, you know, I, I'm now dependent on others so much more than I've ever been before in my life uh, that I, I think I'm lucky that the people around me don't try to tell me what to do or restrict what I can do. But um, I have to imagine that some people out there have are, are in a situation where like the people they're depending on for care are also the people who get to make decisions about what they can and cannot do.
I think we saw that like in unrest when we talked about that, the um, like the patients being taken from their home and institutionalized or, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, okay. Well, that was, that was interesting. Okay. Now I want to bring it into like a positive, uh, bent. So, um, we talked about how, what we saw at camp was that our lives could be better. Oh no, we didn't talk about that. Um, but we, we sort of talked about it. Okay, here we go. At camp, we realized we had to do things together, not just at camp, but outside of camp. Um, this is, I think, was like in the movie around the time when it was shifting from that first half about like what things were like at camp to the lessons they took from camp to Berkeley and uh, to their like future activism. So they realized that they had to do things together. And I think... I think the context, I, this is part of the problem of uh, doing of delaying this a week because I watched it over a week ago. But I think the context was like um, they were realizing um, they they had like different strengths that they could bring to the table. And in this case, I think what had happened was they were um, the, they're like the counselors that they normally relied on were going to take a weekend off. And the campers were going to cook dinner for themselves. And they were trying to figure out how to make that possible without, um, like, the having able-bodied adults around to take care of them. And uh, Judy Human led the way with, um, like, planning the menu and figuring out meals that, um, that they could make on their own. And then she like rallied the troops and everyone uh, th they like did it by consensus, made sure everybody was on the same page. And then everyone contributed to the effort to uh, plan the meals. And then you see it play out like later in the movie with uh, they're like basically locked in a government building in Berkeley. Uh, or was that in Oakland? Where, where was that building? That, that federal building was in San Francisco. It was in San Francisco. That makes more yeah. sense. Yeah. So the, the federal building in San Francisco, they're like locked in it. And now they're like trying to figure out how to feed themselves all over again. Um, yeah. So I, I know, uh, you know, we talk about how this is like, we're trying to do this together as a group. And by this, I mean, like support each other through our own illnesses as, as well as uh, like putting these advocacy campaigns and activist projects together. Um what do you think it means for us to like do it together versus um, how, well, like what that meant for the campers at Crip Camp or at Camp Gen Ed uh, and in the federal building in San Francisco? Like, what for them physically to be together to take care of each other meant one thing. It was like figuring out food and where everyone was going to sleep and uh, how everyone was going to have their needs met. And for us, we're like, we're all separated. We all have our own remote support systems and we're like only connected in this remote way. But I, I think that's still like the same vision that I want us to have of doing things together and supporting each other. So what, what could that look like for us? Yeah, I think that's a big question. I think that's like the, you know, billion dollar question or whatever um because i think i think this is a thing that i i took away from the film 
as I have taken have taken away from other kind of activist movements and stuff is there is kind of no substitute for being somewhere in person, which sucks when you're in a situation where that's virtually impossible. Um, but that being said, I think to me together says a few different things. I think it means that we need to work hard to build bridges with other allies. And, you know, maybe we can't be somewhere physically, um, but we support the people who can. And so like, you know, we know this hearing is happening on Thursday and I live in California and I'm not going to be able to make it to Washington, D.C. I thought about it, but I just couldn't make it work. Um, but there are people who are able to do that. And so I think like finding ways as a community to support those people as our, you know, sort of representatives, I think is a really powerful thing we can do to make sure that there are some people there. And I think that, you know, I think we've talked a little bit over the months of these about art and about symbolism. And I would like there, I'd like us to have some sort of symbol. You know, I think, think about the, the 90s, you know, growing up as a kid in the 90s, you couldn't get away from that red ribbon, the, the HIV AIDS ribbon. And I think that um, it'd be really powerful for members of our community to show up at a committee hearing with a symbol of all of us, you know, millions missing, you know, with the um, pillowcases and the shoes, I think has done a really good job of this in, you know, so far, but I think that the, we can do even more. And so that's one thing that, that I've been thinking about is I think that even if we can't um, be in person somewhere, I think that there's still ways that our, our um, spirit and our presence can be noted and measured and seen visually um, that, you know, I think it'd be worth us. I mean, it might even be fun to do a space just thinking about like, what should I, what would a good symbol be? I mean, I, I'd be really curious to know what people think. I'm less of a visual person. Um, so I don't know that I have any good ideas, but I bet some people do. Um, that's one thing. And then I think, you know, just again, building allyships with other people. So actually like during this space, I got a message from a, the acquaintance of mine who is a activist and advocate but focusing on um, out the outdoors you know preserving um, public outdoor spaces um, fostering the natural environment uh, very active in um, conservation you know there's a lot of stuff going on in that area in terms of you know different developments that might be really harmful to the environment or things like that and that's that's her that's her passion so I actually just sent her a message this afternoon. She lives in Utah. And I said, hey, um, this week when you're doing your calls for whatever you're doing your calls for, would you ask your senator who's on the help committee to make sure he goes to the hearing on Thursday? And she said, yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's like somebody like her who is powerful, who has a coalition, who's actually like an influencer and has a big platform you know, by talking with her and supporting her work, she supports my work and she's getting the message out there as well. And I think that, that I'm just one person and she's just one person, but like she has like 60,000 Instagram followers and, you know, she will post about it sometimes and stuff. And so there's these little things that we can do that multiplies our efforts. And I think that's another key piece of it. Okay. I, I wait, when you were talking about that, it, it made me think of, um, the scene in Crip Camp where once they're basically locked in the San Francisco federal building, um, 
they have no way of like getting food on their own. And the Black Panthers, the like local Black Panther chapter, um, steps in to prepare meals for them and bring them hot meals every day. And I think it's stuff in addition to meals like bedding and toiletries and stuff. Um, and I was thinking when I was watching that, like, we don't have that. Like, we don't have those deep connections to other marginalized communities and other activist groups that we could like call on like that. At least I don't. I mean, it sounds like you do a little bit with this, with this friend, but like as, as a community, I don't think we have those connections and I think we do need to foster mm-hmm. those connections. And I would also add, because if it's not getting bedding and food, it's something else. Yeah. And I think the other story from Crip camp was the local journalist who was like, Went with went with the group to DC and almost didn't get anything on TV. But because there was a strike at the TV stations, his his story just like happened to go nationwide. And it's one of those things where um, that journalist became really interested in the story, and he you know went out on a limb to understand it and to be present. And sometimes like the lightning strikes at the right moment, and that's where big things happen. But you have to be ready for the lightning to strike. You have to have built those relationships. So I think that, you know, journalists um, is another interesting um, constituency or stakeholder that, you know, is worth talking to um, because you never know when they're going to be ready to do a story or they're going to be ready to, 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 to step up in that way. Um, the other example, uh-oh. Yeah, I, I assume you had to to drop off for a second. Um, I I like that story. I, to me, that that story about the the journalist um, getting that that story run nationwide. So for everyone who who didn't see the movie, basically what happened is you know they've got this um, they've got this action going in San Francisco, but they're really trying to reach D.C. because that's where the federal government operates. That's where the director of the uh, health department works. Um, Callis Stefano or something. That's who they're trying to reach. So uh, they, they're like not reaching this broader audience um, until this one like NBC news journalist in New York, in, in San Francisco sends out his tape to every local news station in America. And I guess that's what like the system was at the time, you know, if you're trying to have your story um, aired nationwide. And normally some of them would have run it, others might not have, maybe only in certain districts or certain areas where that story might have been of interest. But there was a, uh, there was like a nationwide strike or, or there was like a strike at the like uh, like NBC's corporate headquarters or something, and they had nothing else to run. It was like their only footage, their only tape to run. So they all ran it because it's all they had. And then this suddenly, everyone in America was aware of what was going on in this one building in San Francisco. So I, I to me that speaks to like how contingent all this is and how contingent history is in general. 
that one sort of coincidence like that can change the course of history. But um, I'd like to believe that, you know, if it hadn't happened, then that same group of people that had come together at Camp Jened had formed all these relationships, had learned so much about um, uh, about how things could be different and had this vision for a better society that, you know, if it didn't happen that week, it would have happened another week. And uh, that message would have gotten out to the country eventually. But who knows? Who knows? You know, maybe the administration could have changed by then and a new administration wouldn't have been interested in hearing that or doing anything about it. So um, uh, I I think I think really the takeaway is like, be ready when history is when, when that coincidence occurs, be ready for it to capitalize it, capitalize on it as much as possible. And that, that's the attitude I think we need to have about the hearing on Thursday, that um, we don't know if we'll ever have a, another chance like this to be heard by um, by the Senate, by Congress, and by whatever uh, stretch of America we can reach through the media about this. So I think we need to capitalize on this in every way possible. Um, okay, Suzanne, I brought you on. Would you thank you? Can you, you hear me? Some thoughts about the film? Yeah, yeah, we can um, hear you. I thought the film was outstanding, and by the end of the film, I had tears in my eyes. Um, I, the whole context of when they were acting in the Bay Area was a time of great movement in the civil rights. The notion that all people can be part of the larger community for work and education. And I see the situation that we're in 40 years later to be a little bit different now insofar as I, I see that our, our biggest issue is fighting with the healthcare system that has gotten ever anatomized into separate organ systems and spe- separate specialties. And the idea that you can, by algorithm, decide what's wrong with someone in 10 minutes. Um, and that and and that what we need to in order for us to be addressed appropriately for these new complex really newly recognized complex immunological diseases is it needs a a, a differentiation in how medicine is being approached and it's not a casual thing as we ask for money to do trials we also need to be making the case that the way medicine's set up right now doesn't work. I live in Minnesota, and the only thing that's available down here for me to go see with ha- even has a long COVID clinic that even knows the term is Mayo Clinic, which is still stuck in the functional realm. I We don't have health care for long COVID in the upper Midwest, is what I'm going to say. And this is really really bad. And there's no way that I'm going to, after four years, get help at this stage. So while our healthcare system is being purchased by the financial entities in Wall Street, what we can do vis-a-vis our new, newly recognized illness, I'm saying recognized because it certainly has been around for, for 40 years, what we can be spearheading with our newly recognized illness is also an effort to say that the whole organization of how we address our healthcare 
while it sounds enormous, we could be the point that says this has to be changed because while it stands right now, we're not going to get helped. And while the system is floundering under COVID, it's not just that we need to be addressed, it's that we need the services to be addressed to serve us. We need health care. 40 years ago, they needed civil rights to be able to be allowed to go to school and have ramps so they could go to a job. We need health care. We need disability payments because we're not well. We need, um, I'm sorry, I'm really tired. Um, anyway, that, that I think that's what I can say right now. And I applaud everybody who's trying, but that, that, that is um, my contribution. So thank you. Thank you, Suzanne, and and please go rest if you need to. Yeah, I like your point that um, you know I I think they had a vision for uh, American society and the way like the public environments were constructed to make them more accessible to them. But um, I think our vision that we're building is different. It's not about public spaces. Uh, but yeah, about medicine, uh, largely, I think. Um, we need we need doctors who are going to know what our specialties are. We need we don't even ha- I can't I can't even name a specialist I would go to. My my basic doctor can't tell me who I should go see. He doesn't know, and he's he's a nice man, but the specialties aren't organized to even recognize that we have these illnesses. This is a majoring restructuring of how medicine is delivered. And you need hour-long appointments, not 10-minute appointments. And you need, I mean, it's just some fundamental reworkings. And the whole notion that we have these waves of COVID, clearly we need the public part. We need the public recognition of masking and air ventilation. This is the opportunity to go from water cleanliness like cholera. We can become the air cleanliness. I totally am behind that motion. But we also need to look again. This is a wake-up call to how are we delivering medicine in this country. We can't afford to deliver medicine to specialists in urban centers when people have COVID in every rural town in America. I mean, something is really broken about how we're going to address this long-term illness with the current system and where it's even getting. and, And recognize that what the current system is today is going to be even further streamlined with the intent that the financiers are making the decisions right now and the algorithms that are coming through AI. It's a hugely two different roads we're going down, one where the patients need to go and one where the money wants to go. And and we need to figure out a way to get the, the political people to understand the depths of the problem that we're facing. It's not just that we are sick. It's that there's no one who's even invested in trying to take care of us um, because of the way the system's set up. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, you know, I think on the one hand, you've got specialists and there's no specialist for us because the major specialties that treat outpatients like neurology and cardiology, psychiatry, that they're not the specialty that would treat us because we don't have neurological or cardiological or psychiatric diseases. Um, We have an immunological disease and there's immunology is a very small specialty that has not historically looked at post-viral illnesses and um, and it's, it's not doesn't have the size and scope of those other specialties which and and like you said in rural America where half of America lives 
um, they barely have any access to those specialties. So it, it needs probably to be treated by primary care doctors. That, that's what like um, Dr. Petrino said on the long COVID hour a few weeks ago, that his goal is to like train up every primary care doctor in America to be able to treat long COVID. But, um, but at the same time, primary care's structured in a way where they're not expected to keep up with every latest development in every new, you know, in, in every disease. Their job is, uh, is different. They learn the basics in medical school, and then they, uh, from then on, pass on patients who need more advanced care than they can provide. So we, we, there's no home for us, like you said, and, and something has to change. And, and maybe both have to change where um, immunology or some new field has to grow to meet the demand of everyone with, um, with these chronic um, immunological conditions. And primary care doctors, you know, need to have a different kind of relationship with the latest research and a different kind of relationship with their patients. Uh you just wondering. Um, yeah, hi, Jonathan. Is, yeah, come join the conversation. Hi there. Yeah, um, did you guys already talk about the uh, Senate meeting? And I was wondering if anybody has any insight or rundown on, um, I know there's a caregiver, there's a patient, and there's Yad Ali, who I know, I don't know any of the other names. You're talking about the uh, the witnesses? That's right. Talking it? Yeah. Um, I know I recognized a couple of the names. There was uh, Ziad. I think he said he's phenomenal. I love him. Uh, he'll be great. And then Angela, I recognized on the patient panel. Um, I, I personally didn't know the others, uh, though. From what I've heard about the uh, Bernie Sanders team that's putting this together, um, they they're taking it pretty seriously and are trying to, uh, you know, they're, they're basically on our side in trying to portray this um, illness as something that demands more attention. Cool. I'm, uh, I'm on the fence about driving down. I'm in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm probably well enough to do it. I don't want to get infected again. <laughs> that shit sucks. So uh, I may see you there on thursday who knows okay yeah if you are planning to come fill out the um that form i sent out for t-shirts so that you can uh, get your t-shirt and it looks like we're gonna have at least a couple dozen people there uh in our group so i'm hoping that'll make a nice big visual impact on the senators and the other participants and the media but uh, every every person, every additional person need, can come. We would need be five great. times that. We need it to be spilling out the fucking door. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that they are planning for an overflow room already, so I think I think they are expecting that. Um, and I know we have at least one other patient coming from Pennsylvania, and some of the patients are trying to organize meetings with, like, our senators and Bob uh, representatives. So you may be able to join the other. Pennsylvania patients, uh, if they're able to set that up. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But, but don't, don't push yourself. You know, I think we have what I'd call a critical mass, at least for like showing that 
were paying attention to this and and showing up. So uh, it's not worth, um, you know, causing no, any sort no, of harm to yourself over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, 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 uh, I'm recovered enough that I can call myself mostly recovered to other people with long COVID and not at all to like normal people, healthy people. Um, so definitely within my range, I just don't want to get infected again. And I'm low on sick days. So that's it. I'll probably be there. All right, cool. Looking forward to meeting you. Yeah. Um, okay, my uh, girlfriend's mother wants to pop in to say a word. Hi. <laughs> um, just wanted a few thoughts about Crip Camp and how it relates to this coming Thursday. Um, one of the things in, in Crip Camp where the message was, you know, we're here, um, we're not going away. You have to deal with us. You can't ignore us and make places accessible with us, for us. And now on Thursday, we're going to be using accessible entrances, ramps, parking, et cetera, building on the work that was done then to continue to be recognized. And in a lot of the talks that went on after CRIPCAN came out, um, it was discussed how the advances that were made didn't benefit just the disabled community. But, you know, a lot of people use elevators and ramps. A lot of people, just because uh, a more inclusive society is better and helps everyone. And when you're talking about what groups and the intersectionality of things, uh, the main thing that can be argued with long COVID is something that Judy Human said to Stephen Colbert when she was on the show. He, he said something about being disabled. And she goes, no, it's not that I'm disabled. It's something like, she said something like, it's that you're temporarily abled. But many people out there will find out they're not going to be abled their entire life for any number of reasons. And with so many people still getting COVID and more people getting long COVID every day, if the education can take place that this is not just us, it's going to continue to affect people and in terms of addressing the healthcare community that Suzanne was talking about and all, that the educational piece that this is what's happening, this is how many we are, there's going to be more, maybe you, it pays to pay attention here. And I think this piece is starting on Thursday in a very exciting way that you're, you're showing up and saying, and we're showing up and saying, here we are, and people are starting to pay attention and hopefully that education will keep on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think those are good points. Uh, I definitely feel like we're building on uh, the work that came before us and I'm grateful for all of that every time I uh, um, go up a ramp in my wheelchair. Uh, I do think it needs to go further because there are these like decorative pavements that when I go over them in my wheelchair are very uncomfortable and they're clearly designed to be a visually attractive to abled people not constructed with me in mind um so I think there's a you know still room for improvement there but but yeah definitely building on that um so thank you cool um did anybody else have any uh, thoughts on Crip Camp that they wanted to share or uh, any anything about the upcoming hearing, too? 
On the note of the hearing, there will be a, another space tomorrow led by the uh, Operation Moonshot team to um, basically have like a call party to get everyone to call your senators and or, or specifically call the, your, the senators on the help committee, which is holding this hearing, and ask them to attend and listen to uh, the hearing itself. So look out for that. Suzanne, I saw you come off. Yeah, my... Daniel. Yeah, yeah, you asked. You asked what else from the movie. Um, yeah, I, I really liked the movie. <laughs> what those what those guys did was just amazing. Um, note that the movie was about their first big action, but the, they worked many years, which the movie doesn't cover. Subsequent to that, to where the final act that we know of today was passed under the Bush administration. So just like I remember when Hannah Davis spoke to Hannah, she's on here right now. I see when she spoke to the, I, I believe it was to a, a group in Congress um, with with the woman from Texas. Um, it this is gonna ha this is not just a one shot deal. This is it's going to be many times over that people make the case and this and the focus is brought back up and the and the momentum builds and not to be too discouraged that the treasure box isn't opened on on this Thursday I, okay yeah I think there's a lot of excitement and pressure on this hearing it's a big deal but it's not the only thing that will happen it's uh, you know, it's just the next step. In... Every time you get on base, it's really cool. Yeah, exactly. But, but the game isn't won yet. How's that? And, yeah. and not get discouraged. Okay. You know, we, we could have a low inning, but, but, but I have high hopes that this is going to be a wonderful hearing and that you all who are making this happen and going to be there are going to be outstanding. I really trust that. And I, I, I thank you for it. Yeah. Yeah. And to build on your point about making a connection between the two, I think um, I think some of the people who participated in that action in San Francisco uh, could have walked away from that and said, we did it. And, you know, they could have brushed their hands off and said, mission accomplished. We got something signed. Now we have our civil rights. Uh, and then they, they could have just left the any future work to other people or said there is no future work to do, but I don't think we should do that now or at any point. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done. You, like, let's say we get, you know, some, some pill that a uh, primary care doctor can prescribe that makes things a little bit better for people with long COVID. I don't think that would be enough of a win. I think like the, the vision we have for um, improving care and research for everyone with these chronic immunological conditions um, like ME-CFS, like POTS, uh, and post-Lyme, and, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, I, I think the work isn't done until uh, medicine has changed and the way these diseases are treated yeah. has changed. Um, you're, you're absolutely, I agree with you. And we there's nothing to indicate that's going to be a one pill solution. I mean, my, my family background is in cancer 
we've been talking a lot about HIV. Not that these are those illnesses, but some of the things that are going on are similar and we know about them. We know how hard they are. And, and when something's living as this one is in different tissues throughout the body, that's, you're, you're into major, major science. And so that's why it, it isn't a short solution, it's a long-term addressing. How are we going to make this real science, real care for patients? You know, I, I, I'll bring up, if it's okay, I, I watched the, the movie that the reporter did about when his wife got cancer. Um, I forget what the name of it was. He was from Alabama. And the way the community reacted to, oh, she has cancer. Let's bring her food. Let's help. Now, they didn't stick with her to the end when she died, but they were there at the beginning. They acknowledged she was sick. And there's a community component to what we're suffering that's really frustrating because I don't see that community component at all. I don't hear it talked about, and I know it wasn't at all present in my life. Um, one day I'm fully active in the community. I'm going to meetings and being seen by people throughout the week and I stay home and I'm gone. And it's like, what the F was this about? Because I'm sick now and nobody can deal with it because they don't know what it is. So there's, you know, the medicine has changed, the community has changed, and all this is going to take time. But as um, your, your girlfriend's mother was saying, we have to be there for um, each other and understand how large the dimension of this problem really is. It's not a small contingent of people who want something. It's seeing a very, very big gap in the way that we take care of each other in our culture. So, I love it. Yes, exactly. Um, I've been thinking about the the cancer example. You know, I. I, I think your experience of what you had is, is similar to what a lot of us have experienced. Um, not too dissimilar for me. And I certainly heard uh, from many others of like, you just sort of disappear and you stop hearing from people and, you know, you like wonder, do they even notice I'm gone? But, um, but with cancer, there's like this, this, this like script for people to follow. Uh, they know, like, oh, this is serious. This person's going to be going through hell. They've seen it on TV. They've seen it in films. They may have known people who've gone through it. They know how bad it is and how much you need, they, they need your support during that time. So people show up because they, they know what to do and they know why to do it. I, I don't think that script was there for long COVID. It was, it, it was new and it's, you don't know how much the person is suffering. You haven't yeah. seen it portrayed on TV. They haven't read books about it. They didn't learn about it in school. You just don't know what it is. So I, the reaction I get from people when I tell them I have long COVID is like, oh, that sounds bad. Can I say that after, you know, I'm married to, uh, I'm married to a cancer doctor. And one of the astonishing things after a, a long time of thinking that cancer people are so very sick and feeling, you know, sympathy for them. I was astonished when I watched this movie last week that my primary reaction is, how can she be so sick? She's standing up to make cereal. I couldn't get over the fact she was standing up. I mean, and that's when I realized, my God, I've been in this for too long, this business of having to lay down because I can't stand up. It's really weird. Sicknesses are different, that's all. I don't want to be comparing them too much. It's just we have different notions of what it means to be sick. And um, 
Yeah, and I think that that notion of what it is to be sick isn't there for like other people don't know what it's like for us to be sick. Yeah. They don't they don't have a conception of that because it's not a disease that they've had or seen people have or heard about people having. It's just like uh, they just don't know what it is. Yeah. And, and like we were talking about earlier in the call where we like if if you don't see us for a while, you could just see like a person sitting who looks normal. Mm-hmm. So it's like visually there's no clue that something's really, really wrong. Yeah. All right. I'm not sure where we're going with that, but I thought all your uh, points about it were very insightful. So thank you for sharing. Um, okay. Well, so we've got like 15 minutes left. Um, I did want to leave some time uh, if anybody wanted to chat about the hearing coming up. Um, any like questions about that or thoughts about that, um, I would like to hear. And then, like I said, there will be um, other, there's going to be like other spaces uh, planned for tomorrow and after the hearing by the Operation Moonshot team, if that's something you're interested in coming to. Uh, do you have any more info about the rumor that this is a real legitimate shot on goal from the Bernie Sanders staffers or team? Is that just something you've heard? Has that been published anywhere? A real legitimate what? Shot on goal. Oh, shot on goal. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, what do you mean by that? Like that this would be some, some attempt to like get some legislation through? Yeah, or, or something like that. You, you mentioned a while ago when I asked my previous question that you thought that you'd heard something about the Bernie Sanders team or staffers who had sort of set this up as being interested in putting forward a legitimate effort or actually trying to do something. This isn't, um, it's, this is clearly not like a, a Republican Senator trying to put things on record about, um, the origin of, of COVID and it's just been named long COVID or something like that. This is like an actual attempt to try and legitimize this. And it, it's run by people with a vested interest in um, getting it done and making forward progress. And I'm, I'm just curious if there's anywhere I can read more about that. Yeah. I, I don't know that there's anywhere you can read more about it. Um, I, I will say from what I've heard in my conversations with, um, you know, other people about this is that, a hearing like this can play a bunch of different roles. Um, it can start off a path to legislation. It can provide scrutiny for um, the administration. If there's actions that like HHS or the white house could take, um, this can be a way for the Senate to get them to take those actions. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and, and if there's existing legislation that like needs some more momentum, this can be a way to give it momentum. But basically it draws attention to the issue and can um, add a lot of weight to it if done right. Like you said, it could also be, you know, just a way to score points for one party or the other. I, I don't think that long COVID is something that either party uses to score points against the <laughs> other. I think um, I think. Sanders teams doing this because they've heard from constituents that this is a a issue that they're concerned about. The Senate has never held a hearing on long COVID before. 
and I think they felt that um, it was overdue. Do now, we, I do don't think, think it's the... tied to specific legislation that they're trying to write or pass. Gotcha. Do we, do we think that it had any impact from the Twitter blow up on Bernie Sanders? From what I heard, uh, at least one person in the Sanders office was aware of the Twitter blow up. I don't I haven't heard that like it was a response to that. What, what I heard was that it was a response to a request from constituents for a hearing. Cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that uh, that Twitter thing hurt. I think it showed them at least that, um, you know, there's there's some real attention and uh, on this issue. So. Um, but I, I don't think it's like an attempt to placate everyone who is tweeting hashtag pod save John. Yeah. And my, my guess, this is just me speaking personally, is that like they probably had been thinking about it for a while. I mean, we're a few years in. It's not the first time they've heard of long COVID. The House side has had one or two hearings on long COVID. You know, it, it probably was like somewhere on their to-do list or agenda um, to bring up long COVID at some point. But um, I'm, I'm just speculating about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, is anyone here? I'm just looking. Is any, of you, any of you coming in person with me? Uh, will I see you on Thursday? I don't see anyone that I recognize from uh folks who filled out the form but it's gonna be a good sized group i said at least a couple dozen people a bunch of whom uh i like recognize from long covid twitter so it'll be so cool to meet them in person and uh i'll just repeat again you know if you have a, if you can go and it, you can do so without like a big cost to your health you should absolutely come this is going to be a, a cool experience not only to uh you know see senators talking about your illness but to meet um other long covid patients who are who have been active in this community and you may have uh, interacted with online and to get a t-shirt yeah all right um any other thoughts people wanted to share either about crip camp or about um the upcoming hearing or anything else you know long covid hours open for anything long covid related Anyone can come up to speak. So at least two of these people, uh, Therese Matlock, Matlock Brown and Tiffany Walker have published on long COVID. Both of them were offered authors on that JAMA on paper that was the big magnum opus of Recover um, six months ago and have multiple they, other they work papers on, on Recover them. projects. I, I had seen that, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so, and yeah. one of them, I think works is also working on the um baricitinib trial with wes eli awesome. so yeah they're 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 long COVID scientists okay I, I i've never heard any of their names and i've been I've read fucking hundreds of papers on long COVID at this point yeah i have so too but i don't know my last year. of everyone who is on them especially those papers that have like 50 names on them yeah, that's true. I know. I, I typically know a lot of it. Like I know Michael Peluso and Iwasaki and and Wes Ellie and and 
fuck a yeah. lot of names, but but none of the co-authors or other people working in their labs. Well, and and the difference with all of those is that they're out in the media all the time, talking to the media. So um, yeah, I I definitely heard of all of those, but yeah, I mean for every for every um, person out there talking to the media who we hear from all the time, there's probably a hundred long COVID scientists we don't hear about. Yeah. Um, I, I think they, I think they're serious scientists. I, I don't know how well they'll speak to like the pieces we care about specifically about like increasing research funding, increasing supports um, and like doing more provider education uh, you know, they're they're more in the weeds of the science, so they they may only be able to speak to like their their like own knowledge base. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, fuck. I've been through I've been through two long COVID clinics from two leading health systems, and um, <laughs> that until that research gets done, there's nothing they can tell you. They can they can give you symptom management if you have thoughts. And I, I mean, I, that, of course, there's a huge asterisk and there's definitely a bunch of other things, but I'm, I'm definitely very excited about the research and having something to distribute out to PCP clinicians other than symptom management and coping and stuff like that or pacing. Yeah, that's what we all want. Yeah. Uh, research is going to be such a game changer once we get even to like the first crappy treatment. Um. Because even the first crappy treatment will be worth billions of dollars, and we'll probably get television advertising, and uh, you know, and and will give us something to build on for the next treatment. So, yeah, just get into that first um, that first signpost is going to be huge. Yeah, so obviously that's why they're doing a whole panel on that. I think it's nice that they're doing a panel of patients, and not just bringing in the uh, scientists because. My guess is if they had done this 20 years ago, like we were talking about, patients weren't viewed as having a say in anything back then. And they probably would have just talked to the scientists. Um, so I, I think it's a mark of progress that we have a patient panel. And, and a uh, mark of the work that like the Patient-Led Research Collaborative for Long COVID has done, even in the last few years, to uh, elevate the voices of patients. All right, cool. Anyone uh, else have something they want to bring up related to the hearing and or Crip Camp before we wrap up here? Okay, so I'll just wrap up. Um, thanks to everyone who watched the movie and came and talked about it, especially Suzanne and Ezra. And um, I'll throw a shout out to Julie, too, for watching the movie and sharing your thoughts. Um uh, if, if you're interested in having say in what the next movie is and talking about it over chat, join our uh, Discord, and you can DM me for the link to that. Um, and then join the uh, Moonshot uh, space tomorrow for more information about calling senators to get them to come to the hearing, um, just, just the senators who are on the committee, and, and for other actions you can take related to the hearing. And if you're able to come into town, um, fill out the form that we made 
for a t-shirt and that'll also give us your information so we can help um organize everyone to get to the right place at the right time and uh, go in as a group cool uh i'll see you all tomorrow or if not tomorrow uh next monday for um the next long COVID hour and we'll probably talk about the hearing the whole time then and do a, a debrief on that cool uh see you next week bye everyone stay safe